penultimate episode in this series. I had originally planned to cover principles relating to each enneotype before right at the end presenting something like a mimetic enneagrammatic theory of non-violent communication, but the more I thought about it and especially as I started reflecting on the meaning of types 3 and 9 for this series, the more it made sense to deal with non-violent communication right here. It's this tool that is, I think, profoundly transformative for dealing well with relationships and especially with conflict in relationships. And by relationships, I mean that term in the most general sense. We're talking about all kinds of relationships, different degrees of intimacy and all of that. And so we will be looking at this under the banner of what I'm calling the principle of mediation. Let's first just look at the general principle before I get to outlining some principles for putting nonviolent communication into practice. And I'll be doing this obviously in the light of some of the things that we've already explored uh, in terms of mimeticism and the Enneagram that we've uncovered so far. Towards the beginning of this series, I talked about the mythological pattern that suggests that creation tends to happen out of violence. If you read mythology, this is the distinct impression that you get. Violence precedes creation. But the account of creation in the Bible, which is this very strange poetic exploration rather than something like a science of creation as we would understand it today, in that account order is created with words, just words, which is astonishing. God speaks, let there be light, and he separates light from darkness not by slaughtering some mini-god, but by having a conversation with matter and form and the force of gravity and other things. I think this is one of the greatest gifts to humanity that has come down to us from the Judeo-Christian tradition. It's the idea that talking can heal, um, it can make whole, it can redeem. Remember in, in the Christian tradition that creation and redemption are part of the same divine act. Even that problematic modernist secular Jew named Sigmund Freud came up with psychoanalysis, I believe, because of a connection with his tradition, and it was a tradition that prized words. Even if psychoanalysis gets a lot wrong, and I think it certainly does, the importance of talking for the sake of healing, for, for the sake of putting things together, gets something very right. If you read Plato's Republic, you will find a broad delineation between two modes of speaking, in other words, two predominant uses of language. The first is sophistic language. The sophists were a group of hack philosophers who believed that meaning was not something found through language, it was not something that you discovered by, by finding words, but rather it was something that was manipulated by language. Nominalism is one of the modern forms of this idea, although you will find expressions of the same idea throughout history. Language, in other words, was thought by the sophists to be an instrument of power and even an instrument of violence. Against the sophistic use of language is the Socratic Platonic view that language exists to locate the good, the, the true and the beautiful, 
If there is no real goodness to be found, then the sophists are right, basically. We have to resort to power and manipulation. We need to shove things around with words to win the war, basically. And in this case, truth itself equates to power. And, and I think that's something that has become kind of standard practice in a lot of contemporary discourse and political uh, discussion. Well, the biblical view of language seems to me to be closer to the Platonist view. It's well known that when Moses asks God for his name in the Exodus story, he's asking, in a way, for the power that would have been transmitted to him by knowing that name. He would have been working with an ancient Egyptian-slash-pagan conception of language, which, which saw language as a kind of magic, very much along the lines of the beliefs of the sophists around language. What happens is not what Moses expects, though. God utters his name, but the result is not that Moses gains the power to manipulate God and reality. Rather, in being told the name, Moses enters into a relationship. He is, in a way, humbled, um, rather than elevated to a kind of tyrannical position of power. And this means, I guess, that uh, naming is not claiming, it is relating. Uh, at least if that is um, how words relate to reality. Here then, we basically have two poles of mediation. Mediation can be used as manipulation, and I think all of us have from time to time been guilty of trying to manipulate the world and others through words. This is where deceit comes into play, which is the core vice of any type threes. But true mediation is an invitation. It's a kind of welcoming into the state of what is ultimately real and true and good and beautiful. And I think that's a wonderful way of, of thinking about it. It's not about bending the world and others to suit ourselves, but really, in a way, about bending ourselves to better fit with what is ultimate. I recently read Kierkegaard's book, Repetition, which is a fascinating book, a, ver a very interesting exploration of an idea the idea of repetition. And there he basically says that mediation is an issue of repetition, or that mediation should be thought of in terms of repetition. It's a question of what we choose to repeat. In terms of mimetic theory, I think this is really interesting, because the question is, what do we want to imitate? Since imitation is also about repetition. And this, I think, offers something of a, a key for interpreting Marshall Rosenberg's amazing work on nonviolent communication, which I will get to shortly. The principle of mediation fits well, I think, with Enneotypes 3 and 9. Threes are very well known for their ability to communicate in the terms of other people. They can bend their style of talking to suit the need of the immediate moment. The risk here, as I've already suggested, is that deceit creeps in where truth is left unsaid in the service of bolstering one's image. Nines are very well recognized as being the mediators in a way because they tend to have an instinctive understanding for what is required to bring people together or to step out of the way, as they often do, to let harmony happen. But nines are reluctant to get into uncomfortable territory to achieve harmony. I don't think they're the only types that feel uncomfortable with this, by the way, but they certainly are arguably the most uncomfortable when it comes to um, dealing with conflict. So at point three, 
we have a reminder that we cannot have harmony at the expense of truth. And at point nine, we are reminded that we cannot have harmony at the expense of conflict itself. Conflict, it turns out, is inevitable and it's worth working through it, no matter how difficult that can be. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the resolution to the conflict is going to be always ideal, probably isn't in a lot of cases, but it is still important that we make an effort to to get through it. Points three and nine obviously connect to point six on the Enneagram, if you look at the Enneagram diagram. So certainly there is some six-ish energy that's going to come into play when it comes to good mediation. But that is what I'm going to be spending uh, time on in the next episode as we close off the series. With all of this in mind, let's look at a kind of an outline of nonviolent communication. Obviously, I'm drawing very heavily from the insights of Marshall Rosenberg, and I would highly recommend that you read his work in full. His book, um, there are a few, but uh, focus on his book, Nonviolent Communication. It is amazing. Still, my outline here should, I hope, be something of a decent intro to some of his core ideas. The basic idea behind nonviolent communication is that there are ways of conversing with others that promote compassion. And there are also naturally ways of conversing that resist compassion, both for ourselves and for others. So our idea here and in the general theory of nonviolent communication is to speak in a way that promotes compassion. Very simple. There are essentially four steps to nonviolent communication, and I'm going to mention them and then get to the details afterwards. Actually, I will only be getting to the details of three of these principles. The fourth is what I'm going to be looking at in the next episode, together with a few other ideas, obviously. So the first principle is observe. Second, describe emotions. Third, identify needs. And fourth, make a request. At first, this sounds kind of ludicrously simple and also maybe even a little bit obvious, but it is also uh, rather counterintuitive. Most of us do not naturally communicate in this way, especially in the midst of conflict. What I want to point out is that each of these steps are in keeping with both mimetic theory and the Enneagram. In terms of mimetic theory, all of the steps involve a core recognition of repetition, that the issue of shared desire or imitated desire, which desires we need to be mimicking. In terms of the Enneagram, then, each of the steps requires seeking a deep understanding of the people we are communicating with, as well as ourselves. It is, in a way, helpful to think of communication not in terms of two people on opposite sides of a fence facing each other, um, which is something that conflict makes us do. Uh, It tends to view communication as in some sense, oppositional. Rather, we can think of communication as, in a way, this is just an image, two people looking at the world, seeking a shared point of connection, a point of departure, as well as uh, an aim that they can strive towards. This is just an image um, and shouldn't be taken too literally. I think it's helpful to actually face each other when we're having discussions. But by facing each other, we are we are, in a sense, standing shoulder to shoulder and looking at the world um, as we try to be less confrontational in our speech. 
With this in mind, let's look at some stages of nonviolent communication. The first idea, which is very close to my five-ish heart, uh, is just to begin by simply observing. You become, in conversation, a non-judgmental mirror of what you perceive. This is absolutely vital. You cannot produce productive healing conversations by declaring and or seeking to confirm prejudgments. I find it significant that the Satan character in the Bible is known as the accuser. He accuses. He declares his bias right up front and in such a way that no alternative view is allowed and no alternative conclusions can be arrived at. In the book of Revelation, Satan gets chucked into a lake of fire, which is symbolic of an absolute failure to reach some kind of redemptive conclusion. I'm just using that as an image, not as a theological statement, in case you are wondering. If you want to get somewhere, genuinely, then don't mimic Satan. It's pretty much that simple. A few things come into play in just observing. First, no contradictions. I know that that's two negatives. It's a contradiction of contradiction, but two negatives make a positive. I'm not saying that there will never be a time to contradict the person you're talking to, but early on in the nonviolent communication process, just observe. In terms of mimetic theory, the ideal is actually something like the absence of mimesis. You repeat what the other person is saying, but you don't imitate their rivalrous desire, and which is more difficult. You need to take a step back from your own rivalrous desires too. The only desire to copy, really, is the desire to offer an honest reflection of what the other person is saying and, as we'll get to, also feeling. It helps at the observation stage, if it is really a stage, it's more like a, just a principle, to recap what you've just heard or learned from the person you're talking to. Someone says something and you say, I hear you saying this or that, or if I understand you correctly, you're saying, and then you describe what they're saying. This is a very brilliant principle. It's, very, it's been used uh, widely in psychology because it, it slows the conversation down, and that's often very needed. And it has the benefit of conveying your genuine interest in actually hearing what the person is saying rather than merely following it up with your own view. Um, people involved in mediation will know that this is crucial so, for example, someone might say something like this to you. We have to do something about illegal immigrants. They're taking our jobs and people like you don't care. And so let's say that there's an accusatory tone in the statement. Well, something like this might get your blood boiling. But forget your boiling blood and just observe. You may have very strong opinions about illegal immigration on all sides of the debate. Forget your opinions. I know this is difficult, but it's really useful. Just reflect what you hear. Um, that's going to help immensely as you try to get to the heart of what is going on. You'd say something like, I hear you're saying that you're concerned about your job security, and it seems that no one is really paying attention to how this issue would affect you. The great temptation in any conversation, especially in very heated conversations or higher conflict situations, is to defend your ego. But trust me, your ego is not worth defending. I think there is something that we could learn here from Enneotype 9s. Forget defending your ego. You can try it, of course, but you will have already failed at nonviolent communication. 
because your ego defending would basically set you up as a mimetic rival and a model at the same time. And the ideal here really is to, to step away from any kind of rivalrous mimeticism. Remember, this is vital, that people mimic each other, which means that our goal is to model the kind of behavior we want to see in others. Model understanding, compassion, care, concern, and so on. And there is actually a really good chance that this will transform the conversations you have, even in the most difficult situations. So that is step one, observe. Now, step two, describe emotions, not positions. I spoke a little about emotions in the previous episode, and there's always more to say um, about that topic than I can manage to get through in an episode, but it will be good to go into more detail on that here, since the second aspect of nonviolent communication involves describing emotions. The idea is to focus when you're in observation mode on describing emotions, not positions. This, as some of you will immediately realize on hearing this, is terribly difficult, but it's also very necessary since it'll help us to see the actual human being in front of us rather than the degree to which they are contravening the neat borders of our own ideologies. For reasons that aren't always clear, positions are often read by people as ad hominems, basically as insults. If you take a position on an issue that is different to mine, I might default to thinking that not only is my position unacceptable to you, but that in some way to you, I am the problem. If you are, for example, a third wave feminist decrying the evils of men, it would be pretty easy for me to jump up and defend myself since in one fell swoop, all men everywhere have been deemed beyond redemption. And what can anyone really do about that? But what I would be mimicking in being antagonistic is the desire to render reality entirely in abstract and impersonal terms, which is precisely what uh, an attack on all men everywhere would be. A better approach would be to speak in personal terms, that is to try and get to the heart behind what I may have perceived as being a case of shoddy logic. So when you reflect what you're observing or when speaking about any issue, pay particular attention to the emotion behind what is being said. Both your emotions, although this is a secondary concern, and the emotions of the other person you're speaking to. If someone accuses you of something, for example, or says something that you outright disagree with, it's so easy to get defensive. But honestly, don't worry about what you agree with or not. It is far better to convey your awareness of how upset that person seems to you and to try and get to why you think that may be, what caused that um, upset. You can later, once you've really heard the person that you're speaking to, tell the person of how what they said makes you feel. Again, addressing the the core of your emotional experience rather than merely dealing with things at the level of some sort of abstraction. But always remember to announce your feelings from a desire to create compassionate understanding. The ideal is that the person you're talking to actually hears not your position, but your heart. And maybe that sounds a bit wishy-washy, I guess. Um, But since in conflict we're dealing with sentiments, it actually helps to get a little bit sentimental. 
We often resort to judgments, but judgments tend to fail to help with nonviolent communication. They actually focus on right and wrong rather than on meeting the actual needs of people and working towards shared values. The minute you start to focus on what the correct or incorrect view is, you'll lose sight of what you and the other person are not getting. You'll hear someone say, for instance, violence is bad. Well, violence is certainly bad, but it's better to get to the emotion behind what's being said, not to the judgment you have about what is being said. So a better way of saying this would be to say something like, I feel afraid, acknowledging the emotion, when people resort to violence to try and solve conflicts. It'll probably help to notice when our observations have become contaminated with a judgment. Um, if you were to say to someone, um, you are too generous with your money, well, there is an observation there, in, but, but the observation is framed with a judgment. So it's too generous. Removing judgment would leave you with a sentence like, when I see you give your money away, I feel as if you're being too generous. Well, then the, the feeling replaces the certainty of judgment. Here's probably a better example. Take the sentence, Harry procrastinates. That looks like just an observation, but if you pay close attention, the word procrastination, well, that's entirely pejorative. So there's a judgment there. You can remove the judgment and you would end up with a sentence like, Harry tends to do all of his work on the night before a deadline. There's no judgment there. It's just an observation. If you say you're angry with me for no reason, you can hear the judgment. A better way of saying it would be to say, I can see that you're angry with me, but I'm not sure of the reason. In being careful of judgments, also be aware of comparisons. Comparisons are actually taken very easily by people as a form of judgment. Often they are a form of judgment. Someone tells their story and you might be tempted to say, well, that reminds me of when I was in this or that totally unrelated situation. Now, of course, that may be true and you may get to that of, uh, at some point, you know, relaying your experience. But if the person you're talking to really needs to be heard, it doesn't do them or you any justice to shift the focus onto you, at least not immediately. Um, you matter, but... but uh, in listening, it helps to take a, a step back first. Um, I think the Franciscan principle of seeking first to understand and then be understood is, is vital here. A lot of this that I've already said amounts to a vital aspect of nonviolent communication and I think good ethics. And it's something that mimetic theory itself highlights. We need to speak in a way that allows us to take responsibility for what we're saying. I have all sorts of theories about why I think the, the world has shifted away from an ethics of responsibility, but uh, maybe that's for another time. The ideal is that when we get to take responsibility, our communication will be better. So replace words that imply a lack of choice with words that place choice at the center of the human experience. If someone insults you, turn the other cheek and speak to their humanity and describe their emotions. In so doing, they will have a genuine chance to take responsibility for how mean they are being without you even telling them that they are being mean. So you take responsibility for your response 
That's that's actually what the word responsibility means. It means you have an ability to respond rather than an ability or just a capacity merely to react. Part of the function of slowing down the conversation that, that we talked about and describing emotions is to allow space for conscience to operate. And this is obviously both yours and the other person's. Conscience has no room to breathe when we're busy defending ourselves and attacking others. Linked to this idea is the brilliant age-old principle of speaking in responsible I terms, not accusatory you terms. If someone treats you badly, it's very tempting to tell them you treated me badly, as in you did something wrong. Well, there's that accuser there, and that's not going to work. A better way to go would be to say, I felt this or that emotion when you did this or that thing. You're not saying you made me feel this when you did this or that because that absolves you of any responsibility and places the blame squarely on someone else's shoulders. No one makes us feel a certain way. I know that is probably a very contentious thing to say because obviously we feel that the person made us feel that thing, but... There is a gap between stimulus and response, and because of that gap, we are responsible. And just as no one can make us feel a certain way, we cannot make anyone do what we want them to do. So that is step two. Uh, just describe emotions, not positions. The third step is this. Identify needs. This is something that is bound up in steps one and two, and I think is part of the aim of the, the entire communication process, is to actually get to genuine needs rather than to merely be, be caught up in sort of, uh, I guess, a debate or a debatable subject. And while you're observing and describing emotions, you can start to figure out what people need. I spoke a bit about this in the previous episode, as well, but it will be good to build on what I've already said. One idea related to this is the idea that need is not the same as deserving. When our relationships with others are tense, really tense, it's it's so easy to default to language about who deserves what. But that kind of language instantly becomes a barrier to compassion. So as I mentioned in the previous episode, it helps to begin by getting to the feelings behind the words. And when you're the one feeling all of those feelings, the next step is to connect the feelings that you're feeling with the need. You'd say something like, I feel this, and I think it's because I need or want that. So you might say to people, I feel furious with my boss for giving me that extra project because I had to work late. Well, that's okay. It's not, you know, it's a start, but there's no need or desire identified there. So a better way of phrasing it would be, I feel furious with my boss for giving me that extra project because, in this case, I really wanted to have an evening off. I've been working so hard that I feel like I need a break. So an, an actual need is identified. Now, this may be a very trivial example, although I think it's an example that a lot of you out there have experienced. But this is very helpful for getting away from judgments. Often, if not in most cases, our judgments of others mask unmet needs that we have. 
If you feel annoyed with someone for taking so long to get their task done, you might be tempted to tell them to stop being so slow. The accuser sort of steps in again, but that's just going to be a surefire way to get some animosity going, and I don't think that's really your aim. But it helps to articulate your feelings along the lines of a need that you have. Because when others know what your needs are, actually recognize what you need, they're going to be in a much better position to to help to create the conditions that meet those needs. So you'd say, for instance, I'm a little frustrated that this is taking so long because I have other commitments that I need to see to. Well, then the person who is, say, taking so long with the task may be able to offer a solution because you your need has been articulated. Think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs if you need some guidelines, but Other needs include a a need for autonomy, or at least a degree of autonomy, a need for integrity, a need to be appreciated, a need for fun, celebration, spiritual community, beauty, and so on. And of course, I know it's really hard to express your needs. It makes you feel vulnerable. And that's because in a way, it is being vulnerable. But I think long term, it is way worse to not express your needs. It creates a communication gap where something of who you are remains profoundly misunderstood by others. In a kind of tragic comic example, Rosenberg refers to how his mother attended one of his workshops and suddenly she left the room and she just didn't return for quite a while. And when she finally did return, she she still looked a bit shocked and her son, Marshall Rosenberg, asked her, Mom, are you okay? And her response was to tell him, that she'd had this astonishingly difficult realization and she needed a moment to take it in. She realized that she'd been resentful of her husband for about 30 years because he'd failed to meet her needs, but she had never once told him what she needed. And I think that is the the great dilemma in a lot of conflict situations. When we get caught up in the terms of correctness or incorrectness, the terms of judgment and accusation, we quickly lose sight of what is actually needed. And that becomes an issue of what needs to be imitated. As I will get to in more detail in the next episode, obviously, the the question of need is at the center of the Enneagram. Each type has specific core needs, which are masked by, uh, in a way, surface desires. And the ideal is to be able to use that as a step towards identifying our needs more accurately. But I think that is a good place uh, to stop. I've only, as I've said, explained three of the four aspects of nonviolent communication. And I know that I've only done this very briefly, but the fourth requires more detail. And I'm going to also be in the next episode then tying all of this together into a kind of coherent way of viewing the Enneagram through mimetic theory. So that's something we can look forward to. This, of course, is just a primer, but I think it's a decent enough start. Um, So if you are in the midst of conflict, here are some questions that are worth asking along the lines of what I've covered in this episode. This obviously is going to probably be in the midst of a conversation but uh, it could happen in personal reflection as well. The first question is, what do you perceive when you put your judgments out of view? 
when you remove your judgments, um, what is actually showing up for you? Uh, what emotions do you detect underneath the words and how can you reflect those back in an honest and compassionate way? Then lastly, what needs are not being identified and how can you play a part in mediating the situation so that they do get identified? I guess that's a question that, that mirrors uh, the question of how, what needs are not being met and how can you play a part in mediating the situation so that they do get met. So there you go. Uh, in the next episode, I'm going to look at the final principle of the Enneagram of Mimetic Desire, namely the principle of authority, which is symbolized by Enneotype 6. I'll also explain then why that'll be the last episode in the series, even though it may feel to you, uh, and it does in a way to me, that I'm cutting things a little bit short. But I do want to thank you for listening to me. I really appreciate you out there, and I'm, I'm hoping you're finding this stuff at least marginally edifying. Take care, everyone.